0: Hey guys, and welcome to What Was Her Name? The show where I will uncover the stories of domestic abuse survivors. I'm your host, Maya Hooper. Hey guys, and welcome to what was her name. I am here this morning with Tina Swithin. I'm so excited to have her on the podcast today. Tina is the author of divorcing a narcissist. She is founder of one mom's battle and the high conflict divorce coach certification program. Tina Swithin continues to champion children's rights through her family court advocacy. Tina is working to raise awareness of the issue in the family court system and to educate the general public on post separation abuse narcissistic abuse, and the alienation industry. Tina is a co-founder of the organization NationalSafeParents.org and volunteers her time helping with family court reform through awareness, education, and improved legislation such as Cadence Law. It's definitely been a long time coming with our busy schedules, but I've honestly just been really eager to record this episode. Um, Today we're discussing a couple of topics that hit really close to home for me. And I know many others that are listening. Um, It is a grave fear that I think a lot of mothers that are, you know, starting off in the beginning of a gnarly court battle are also fearing. And I think as much education as possible, that we can learn about this is going to help us in the long run. So I think it's incredible what you're doing. Um, Tina, would you mind kind of just explaining to us, for those who are listening, um, what the alienation industry is?
1: Yes, it is the <laughs> dark underbelly of the family court system. It all sprouted from a, a concept or a theory that was created by Dr. Richard Gardner in the 1980s, and the sole purpose of this um, syndrome, is what he labeled it as, was to become a legal strategy used by fathers who were sexually abusing their children. That that is the root of this movement. And I often say, you know, when we're dealing with the roots of a tree, and they are diseased. The, the entire tree is considered to be a complete loss. We need to dig it up, chop it down. There's no saving it. But what has sprouted from that seed he planted is, you know, I, I say it's the biggest multi-level marketing scheme of our lifetime. Wow. Uh, and so it it is a, a whole bunch of unscrupulous professionals in every part, every corner of the world. It's not just problematic here in the United States that are capitalizing off of forcing children into relationships with parents who they have rejected because of abuse or because that parent is disordered and was never able to form a bond with them in the first place. So there is no relationship. And that, that foundation is terrifying when we you know, jump over to the fact that domestic violence is about power and control. And when a relationship ends, that need for power and control doesn't just go away. Many times it intensifies. Many times the abandonment is triggering for the abuser. And so the only way they have to maintain power and control is by using the children to, because they know the children are the number one concern um, of the healthy or preferred parent. And so this is a a recipe for disaster when you have abusive individuals who are using children as pawns and weapons to maintain power and control, and this industry that has been created around a concept that has now been denounced and debunked by every credible organization around the world. Mm. Wow.
0: Yeah, it's, it's alarming. And it's also, I think just prior to being in this um, myself, like having been in a custody battle the last three years, um, I think there's a lot of knowledge that I've learned along the way through strictly just trial and error. Um, And at this point, I feel like I've just lost so much hope in the system, but also like, this makes sense to me, like, I don't know, for people who are listening, some people may be like, what, how is this even possible? Um, which, yeah, how is this even possible? How is this How is this still happening to so many mothers and children um, around the globe? But at the same time, I think I'm like, yeah, like, I just, I the things I've, like, I've seen in the last three years and continue to see through the work that I'm doing and, like, the women that I'm interacting with and what they're going through Um who, who are, you know, their children have been sent to reunification camps. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And,
1: you know, and I'll, I'll share my journey started 14 years ago this month in August of 20, um, 2009. And, you know, I was successful in protecting my kids, but what I have witnessed in this system as a result of both my personal journey and advocacy, I don't know how to walk away I until this is fixed you know we need every every person in the United States and beyond linking arms with us and demanding better I often say this is not an issue that belongs to people who happen to be in going through the family court system this is a social justice crisis that belongs to our entire world and we will see changes when everyone is standing with survivors, you know, if, if the, I, I've heard Danielle Pollock from the national family violence law center say, if the everyday citizen knew what was happening in family court, they wouldn't be able to grasp it. They wouldn't believe it because it is that atrocious. And, um, yeah, I, I do consider it an absolute crisis.
0: Yeah. Tina was there, Like, I know that you said that it's been 14 years now. Was that what led you to being an advocate for this now? Or was there an experience in particular um, or an encounter where you were like, yeah, I can't let this go. Like, I'm going to just like continue to seek change and continue to seek justice.
1: It all really unfolded organically, I will say in hindsight, when I look back that the shift for me Was about two years into my custody battle. It was 2011 when I I just couldn't make sense of the judge's orders after trial. It, you know, I you start to feel like, am I the problem? This is this feels like the twilight zone. Maybe I am the problem. Maybe this makes sense to everybody else, and I'm just there's I'm missing something, Um. (laughs) and so. In that desperation to understand how these things continued to happen, you know, I was dealing with someone where every time I put my little girls in his car on a Friday or a Saturday morning, I would study their faces because I didn't know if that was the last time I would see them. I feared he would either flee with them or drive them over a cliff just to hurt me, and that was, you know, it's so easy for people to say, you know, that's paranoid. And I remember an attorney saying to me, do not ever say anything like that in family court. And I just remember thinking, but that's the truth. And he is that scary. And so it was about two years in where I to try to make sense of it. And because I was representing myself, I did not have an attorney. Mm -hmm. I went one day on a break from work and I sat in the courtroom and I just wanted to observe because when I was there for my own case, there's triggers and so much trauma and, and I just wanted to start understanding the system. And I wanted to watch other cases and see if the judge just hated me <laughs> and, and saw me as part of the problem, which originally he did. You know, you're both lumped into that high conflict category when that is very unfair. It only takes one person to create conflict. Um So when I I was sitting in the courtroom watching these other cases and I started realizing that some of them were very similar to mine and I would follow moms out into the hallway and and say, can we have lunch? Can we, you know, grab coffee? We have so much in common and I'd love to talk Or I would go out, once I watched a case that resembled mine, I would go out to the court computer in the lobby, and I would study that case, the filings, the declarations. And it got to the point where I remember my judge said, Swivin, what are you here for? You're not on my calendar. And I said, you're right, Your Honor, I'm not on calendar today. I'm just here to observe. And you know, the the security guard at the courthouse knew me on a first name basis. And it just I became a fixture there because in my desperation to protect my kids, but to also understand. And I walked away with the realization that we are just case numbers, we are just business transactions. This is a racket, and our kids are being treated as if they were retirement accounts or property divided. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes me sick to this day. And so, you know, the, the long answer to your question to shorten it up is I started connecting with other moms in my area. I live in San Luis Obispo, California, and just talking to others. And I would talk to attorneys in the hallways on breaks and people were watching my case and commenting on, you know, you may want to look into this case law so i just became a sponge and the connections that i was forming became a little network we'd have little meetings and you know really just infiltrated the system and started seeing things through the lens of strategy versus emotion but when my kids were finally protected in 2014 um that's when i I had been consulting with moms um, for a long time, just bouncing ideas off each other and brainstorming. And I was so many of them were saying, "You need to do this full time." And at that point, I was working in PR, and I took a huge leap of faith and quit my job <laughs> with no backup plan, yeah. and and really. I was, I had already written my first book by that point, and my community has grown. You know, when I started my blog and titled it One Mom's Battle, it was truly because I thought I was the only person in the world going through this. Um, It was horrifying, horrifying to find out that there are so many others. And today, our community at One Mom's Battle is just under a quarter of a million people. So that sheds light on how big this issue truly
0: is. Yeah. That gave me chills uh, hearing that because I think that's just so powerful that it started with One Mom's Battle because I can really resonate with that. And I think a lot of others listening can as well. um, That in the beginning, you think this is unique to yourself. only to find out that the more that you speak out, we all have such like intertwined stories. It's horrifying. Yes. Uh, so I just think that's really powerful. Um. I also just part of why I love to do the podcast is because, I mean, a majority of the people I speak to are, I mean, in the first couple of seasons, all survivors. Um, But hearing even in, on this panel, um, a lot of the people speaking have come from an abusive relationship. And just to see, uh, what they've done with that, um, while they didn't, you know, necessarily choose that for their path, what they're doing to like change and impact others is, it's just beautiful to see. Um, I do have a question. So, uh, a couple of things. So I guess what I know that, we talked about, we're talking about the alienation industry right now, but, um, can you just explain like how, how does it get to that point? I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: So in terms, just so I'm clear. So in terms of how does a case get to the point that they would be slated for a reunification camp? Right.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: So, you know, as we, so the way a case would make its way through what i call the pipeline and be marked for a reunification camp you know first that that initial issue that we address there was no relationship or bond between the parent and child to begin with or the child is afraid of that parent because they're abusive and so then that shift of power and control moves over to the family court system and unfortunately we are in a family court system that puts a greater emphasis on parental rights and parental contact versus child safety. Yes. So, you know, in an effort to shift the narrative, many people are familiar with DARVO, deny attack and reverse victim and offender. The Alienation claims become the legal DARVO strategy to shift the blame from the abuser and their actions to the parent. So when a child is speaking out or expressing fear about going on um, to a custody exchange, the in, in this distorted realm of the alienation industry, they will say that the child is being coached, that seeds are being planted, or the um the safe parent or the preferred parent is transferring their own anxiety and fears about this person onto the child. And and so that right there, you know, sets it up to be a recipe for disaster because then you have these unscrupulous professionals who are making a lot of money forcing contact between children and the parent they have rejected. So we have You know, it could be a custody evaluator, minors counsel, or reunification therapist, expert witnesses. There's a whole slew of people who are willing to, you know, run up their bill or their invoice to force these relationships. And we know you cannot force a relationship between two people, especially when a child has been abused. And we're in a system that doesn't understand the 101 of domestic abuse, let alone these dynamics. So, um, you know, that's that's a challenge in itself, because when these experts who are part of the racket and, and hired guns are coming in, the court is taking every word that they say as the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so when these reunification efforts fail, then... They, the kids are labeled as air quotes, severely alienated. And now these people are all uh, proposing more extreme drastic measures such as alienation camps or, you know, now they're trying to rebrand because or reunification camps <clears throat> They're trying to rebrand the name Reunification Camp because the media has started highlighting these issues and and flipped on the light switch. And so now they're calling them intensive programs. Um, They're they're held in Airbnbs. They're held in the abuser's home. They're held in hotel suites. Um, And what it is, the Reunification Camp is typically three or four days where the kids are told right out of the gate that their memories are not accurate. And even if there are proven abuse, you know, findings, the kids are told that it doesn't matter what happened in the past is the past. And we're only focused on the present and forward momentum. And usually with these orders, for these four day camps or programs there, they are accompanied by a 90 day no contact period between the child and their preferred parent, which that in itself is terrifying. You know, they're, they're actually doing what they're accusing the other parent of doing, which if you want to use the dictionary word alienation, they are alienating these kids from their preferred safe parent. And, um, you know the the stories that we hear from kids coming out of these intensive programs is terrifying. Um, you know it's shocking to many people to hear that the origins of reunification camps were actually from a cult and and not just your run of the mill cult. One of the most dangerous cults in the U.S. history. It's called Synanon, and Ex members of Synanon went on to partner and you know set up this camp. Um, originally the first one was uh Family Bridges, mm-hmm. and now they have branched off from there and they're they are everywhere. Um, but with the 90 day no contact period. I have never heard of a case where it's truly just 90 days. That court order puts these vile individuals in complete control of the case. So the judge is essentially giving up their power to these people. There's one operating a camp. She doesn't even have a, a mental health degree. She is a life coach. And these people are charging anywhere between $15,000 and $40,000 for these four-day programs with no qualifications. You know, one of the main um, reunification camp leaders lost his license to practice psychology. So he's just running a business. They're not even trying to say this is therapeutic. Um, it is a for-profit industrial complex that has been created
0: so okay so would you say that their aim is is just money or is it also because you said that the the cult thing with like ex-cult leaders do you think there's also something weird going on there like as well Um, I think that
1: the majority of the people that I've studied who are in this alienation industry are driven by their own personally, I would say their own need for revenge. Mm -hmm. They consider themselves to be air quotes, alienated parents, but you hear them talk in an interview or wherever it is for five minutes, and you can understand why a child would reject them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, but I, I think that financials are really what drives this industry. You know, I know a mom who has spent over $2 million fighting to protect her kids. And she hasn't seen them in over a year after they were taken to this camp. Um, and, And that's because the camp leaders are in full control. They usually, part of the court order gives them the power to get rid of the mom's therapist, to get rid of any players on the case who are not part of their industry because those people would be a threat calling them out. So usually a parent in this position is forced to utilize a, or quote, professional who is aligned with the alienation industry or deeply entrenched. So the, the goal is constantly moving. They said they tell you you can re- reunite with your kids after 90 days if you do these things and jump through these hoops but they're constantly moving the hoops sometimes the hoops don't even exist or they're invisible and and they move constantly so the parent can never ever complete what is asked of them because the orders are written to be so vague and ambiguous and beyond that 40 that 4 day camp is the aftercare cost a lot of these programs actually have True aftercare programs that they've developed, and that is where you know you think the forty thousand dollars is a financial hit. We have parents who are completely bankrupted from the aftercare costs alone. Mm. Wow,
0: that's just—I mean, it's mind blowing to me. Like, I just—I don't know. I I've watched along the way, like your story, like what you've been doing, um, and your name comes up quite frequently, quite frequently. Um, but it's, it's just wild to think that this is actually happening and people are getting away with this. It sounds like they're kidnapping children. It's human
1: trafficking. There is no other way to describe it. And We had an attorney approach us and said, you know, this needs to be examined from a human trafficking standpoint, because in many cases, they're taking kids over state lines. But Mm -hmm. when we started going down that rabbit hole to investigate if that's an angle to tackle this, what we discovered is that in the court orders, you know, they're 10 steps ahead and they have created it so that. When these transport agents come in and forcibly remove the kids, they are granted temporary guardianship. And then when they get to the reunification camp, the guardianship switches to the reunification camp owner. So they aren't, you know, by definition, trafficking children. Well, they are. But legally, there's no recourse because of the way they have this set up. Um,
0: it's terrifying. Yeah, it, it is terrifying. Um, what is like a story that you've seen that's really never left you?
1: You know, I'll tell you the case out of Santa Cruz County, California, Maya and Sebastian Lang. Um, uh, Tina,
0: I, I followed this. I was watching, um, cause they, they used to post videos on Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I watched that and I remember um, they were like so afraid. And then I remember that video where the van came. Sorry, go ahead. But I, I was actually going to ask you about this anyways. So it's really, yeah, I'm glad that you brought her up.
1: Yeah. So for many years, I've heard these stories from clients and community members of their kids being taken at 2 a.m. in the middle of the night. Complete strangers show up and, and forcibly remove their kids. I've heard of kids coming off of school buses and sent to these camps, but we have never had a video to show what is transpiring in these situations. And so I had been out to dinner with my husband and we came home October of 2022. And I happened to open Instagram and I had been tagged in a series of videos posted by Maya Ling, who at the time was 15 years old. And I'm watching these videos and she's describing the family court racket and what her family is experiencing, but that they are at risk for going to reunification camp. And so I'm watching each of her videos. And by the time I get to the most recent one, they are in their grandmother's house, hiding in a back bedroom, with transport agents out in front and police officers. And she was openly sharing the address and inviting people in the community to come bear witness to what was happening. Mm-hmm. And thank God she did that because a have been told there were about 50 people gathered and these children were violently removed. I mean, I was, it's hard not to get, emotionally hooked in when you're doing this work, you know, you have to have some boundaries around that. But I will tell you, because Maya was specifically tagging me in her videos and asking for help, and then to watch what happened. And then the next day, one of her neighbors sent me a video of the actual violent removal of Maya and Sebastian which has now been viewed over 40 million times. Mm. Um, You know, I was, it broke me. And then to know what these kids, now they've escaped. They were taken out of state. They had gone to Lynn Steinberg's reunification camp in Los Angeles. And the stories they're now sharing are horrific. And, you know, you can't believe this is even happening. And um, then the kids were taken to Washington. Their mom was the parent that they made allegations of abuse against and didn't want to be with. But mom was given full authority and took them to Washington. Well, about two months ago, they ran away in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. I actually received a message from Maya um, 304 a.m. one day and it was a video of them fleeing their mom's house and now they are um still in hiding and still not safe because there have been requests to institutionalize them and you know it's horrifying and you know when we look at this case and i've done a lot of research i went and actually bought the entire family court file from the courthouse right before they sealed it because judge Rebecca Connolly knows what she has done and the exposure and the outrage generated around the world you know she's feeling that right now and so she sealed the case um but you know I've gone deep on this case and it, it is so predictable you know the pipeline I talked about, Exactly what has happened in their case. All you need is an abuse allegation and a family that has financial resources, and they are targeted by these professionals. And the professionals on this specific case, we have connected dots with many other cases just like this. This is not an isolated incident. I think these people have been operating in somewhat of a ring for
0: quite a while. Oh wow. So Maya and Sebastian are still in hiding. They're not even, they haven't been reunited with their safe parent.
1: No, not at this, um, not as of this recording.
0: Have you been able to um talk to the safe parent or have they been able to like interact with them at least? I don't know if you can answer that.
1: You know, I I have just publicly I keep my communication with them public because yeah. I know that you know, my platform and exposing people is a threat. And mm. I would, you know, when it comes to any safe parent, you know, I cut off or limit communication completely because I don't want to hurt their case. Right. Uh, I know how I am portrayed in the family court system because I am a whistleblower and mm. I would never want that to bleed over yeah, and yes, hurt yes, someone. Yes. So I'm very um, careful about Not talking to parents in these situations and keeping my distance. But, you know, for me, it's about amplifying the kids' voices Mm -hmm. and exposing what is happening. You know, if we would just
0: listen to kids, we would solve so many of these problems. Right. Yeah. No, 100%. You said that you receive a lot of backlash from being a whistleblower. Um, What does that look like for you? Like, I can imagine it could feel maybe even quite dangerous to be doing the work that you're doing.
1: Um, It is very dangerous. My family, you know, there have been several junctures where I've wanted to fold and walk away because at a certain point, you know, my kids have been through so much and I've had situations where process servers are harassing my kids, following my kids, causing confrontations with my husband, you know we've had to install security system in our a security system in our house, cameras around the property um mm-hmm. not because I live in a dangerous place, but because the work I am
0: doing does come with great risk, right right? I can imagine um I think it's like it sounds like you have just done, so much research to understand, and it's it's pretty crazy to think that it all came from like your individual story and kind of thinking, like, okay, am I the only one seeing this here? Why am I the one that's in the wrong? Um, and needing those answers and needing to understand that, and it's led you all the way to this point. Um, I just think it's incredible the work that you're doing. I'm just like speechless honestly just hearing all of this because i think i knew bits and pieces of this but that's why i wanted you to come on is because i want to be educated and i know that there's a lot of people here who want to know more from you um i do have a question so we talk about um post-separation abuse can you explain that a little bit for me sure
1: well like we we touched on before where You know, it's about domestic violence is about power and control. And when the relationship ends, you know, a lot of times it escalates. I often say that the abuse I suffered during my marriage was soul crushing. You know, I didn't even recognize myself in the mirror by the end of my relationship. But what I experienced afterwards was by far worse. Um, because during the relationship, I could protect my kids. Our, our truth was that he wanted nothing to do with them. Our biggest argument was, you know, why don't you spend time with these two amazing little girls? Why don't you get to know them? And his truth was he only cared when cameras were on or there was an audience present. Then, you know, he looked like an amazing dad and that was the dad, the girls wanted and the dad they deserved so when the relationship ended i was very naive i thought you know things would stay status quo he wanted nothing to do with them and that i would raise the kids i you know i just want to go back in time and and hug myself because of the naivety when the relationship ended and he lost control over me the girls were his way to maintain. And, um, and it was warfare. I mean, he truly, the trauma they've suffered at his hands, um, is criminal. I do believe he should be behind bars and so many of these other people. So post-separation abuse, you know, it continues to escalate. It far surpasses the domestic violence that victims are subjected to while they're under the same roof. Um, because these People set their sights on the kids. And then when you try as a protective parent, when you try to protect your kids in family court, you are seen as the problem. Mm -hmm. And that is the perfect um, recipe for claims of alienation. Our hands are tied behind our backs and we are stopped from doing what nature intended for us to do, which is protect our kids. And so there's, uh, I created a wheel. It's called the Post Separation Abuse Wheel. And if anyone's interested in downloading it, it's postseparationabuse.com. But I really formed a chart to show exactly not only what happened in my case, but the same thread that runs through every single case. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, each spoke on that wheel um it goes from neglectful and abusive parenting coercive control isolation harassment and stalking legal abuse financial abuse counter parenting you know we say the court expects us to co parent but we've up, we're up against someone who is counter parenting and mm-hmm. to survive this we have to develop the mindset of a parallel parent and then the the final wheel On that, uh, or the final spoke on that wheel is allegations of parental alienation. You know, it's a very predictable pattern that all of these individuals follow. And, um, you know, while just for a survivor to be able to look at the wheel, it can help them to articulate the issues because most of the time you're in such a fog. Just from the abuse in the relationship, let alone what you're walking into in family court, and right. suddenly feeling that you're forced to defend yourself at every turn, yes. which causes cognitive dissonance because everything we've been told along the way is leave the abusive relationship. You know, you're brave if you do that, but then when you do, this is what you're met with. We are failing victims of domestic abuse in a huge way. And I actually, I I point the finger at a lot of domestic violence um, organizations and coalitions, their funding only helps, you know, them to assist people who are in the abusive situations. But in many of these cases, they have the direct access to the judges and to the professionals. They hold a lot of power and they could be fighting to extend their services into the realm of post-separation abuse because right now what they're doing stops on the steps of the courthouse and and that in itself is failing so many of these moms. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I feel just like, I know, I'm sure that others listening to this feel really seen as well, I can imagine. Um, But I just feel really seen by you in this uh, as you're talking because, um, like, I can really resonate with, you know, I think when you are leaving an abusive relationship, like, like you said, it's like, you know, it's brave to leave. um, But then I think you're still trying to navigate, like, because for a long time, you're kind of conditioned in an abusive relationship to like accept the behavior or to question your intuition or your perception. And then you get out and you know, that's courageous in itself. But then when you have you know, these children that you're trying to protect as well, um, like in order to almost keep them safe, you have to go against your motherly instincts. Yeah. Um, and I sat through like a recent hearing uh and my my ex-husband he had confessed to uh like sexual like obsessions about ways that you know he could be gratified by children or gratify children and attractions oh with girls and uh further things like I can't even mention as we're recording, but, um, I have these on a recording, um, that I recorded a telephone conversation and the court has them and the court clinician has them. And I mean, I've been, I've been gripping for three years. Um, and I just sat through our most recent hearing and I fought for three years to get a psychosexual analysis test done. Um, and, you know, he didn't complete it. He was supposed to so the judge, like reprimanded him. But all that being said, um, he even in the supervised visitation is acting out and is like doing things like, you know, he brought these like finger puppets to the last session and was like teaching my kid how to have a finger toy. And so my child was sticking his finger up his toys and Nobody said anything, and I knew in that moment what he was doing because I've seen I it. Right. But the I... supervisor didn't stop him. She didn't say anything. She didn't stop him. And then when it was brought up in court, it was dismissed. And it's crazy to me because it's like, in order to keep my child safe, it's like you need to like advocate for them, but like not too much. And if you advocate too much, then you're like, you know creating like a friction and your question and then like you want to protect them and you know they shouldn't be around that unsafe parent but then if you do that then um, you're selfish or you know you're just biased and it's just it's crazy and it's crazy making and you know and,
1: and most people think oh gosh if there's any type of allegation about sexual abuse or concern about sexual abuse that would be the end all be all and kids are safe and actually what research shows is that the, that type of accusation is the atomic bomb in family court and can actually reverse custody here in california if you lodge a and in several states if you lodge a uh, you know a, an allegation of sexual abuse and it's unfounded which the majority will be high high percentage um, for a variety of reasons. Um, and it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It doesn't mean that the worker didn't, doesn't believe the child. It just means, you know, there's not enough proof or the child isn't, you know, whatever there, there's a whole lot that goes into that. But if you make that allegation and it's unfounded, custody is actually flipped. And so now we have sexual predators who have full custody of kids Mm -hmm. and that is, that is terrifying.
0: Yeah. hundred percent. That's like my greatest fear right now, just because I am, you know, he, he, um, has to pay like, I think it's like $7,000 to do the test. And he comes from a very prominent wealthy family. And the judge, you know, he had argued, he was like, well, if she's ordering it, she should pay for it. And luckily the judge was like, yeah, no, you're going to pay for it. But he's like, well, if I pass it, then she should pay for it. Um, And the judge had said something. She was like, if if her reasoning is like not founded and it's just based on her own reality, then I will consider her paying the cost. And I was just, I was just like beyond myself in that moment because internally, because I was like, how have we gotten to this point when we have these tapes, when you have the evidence and you have him on recording? It's not not founded because here right. is proof right here. Um, and you know, my greatest fear is having that custody flipped. Um, well, and I'll,
1: and I'll give you an example of how these unfounded reports work, you know, using something from my story, my ex-husband left my daughter alone. She had just been released from the hospital. She had a 45 minute seizure that the doctors could not stop. It was terrifying. And she was only about four years old at the time. She was released with Orders from the doctor and the hospital that said she could not be alone. We had to sleep with her. She could not be unattended for any reason, even playing. And so that weekend, he left her sleeping in a car. We estimate between 30 and 45 minutes by herself while he was inside a country club watching a bike race on TV. And he admitted to leaving her in the car cps gave him a brochure on safety and closed the case as unfounded because what most people don't understand is in the, you know that there's a disconnect between the terminology from dcsf or cps and the family court system unfounded doesn't mean that it didn't happen. In our case, it meant that the kids were now home with the safe parent and that dad had been counseled on don't do that again. However, if somebody would have seen her in the car and called the police in that moment, he would have gone to jail on felony child abuse charges. But because the kids were safe with me at the time of the report, it was completely forgiven. That is one of the biggest issues. You know, all of these agencies, whether we're talking about law enforcement or CPS, you know, first of all, we're up against a bias that moms make allegations up to get a leg up in custody, which is not true. And then B, you know, the reality of the system. They're not educated on these issues and their dialog is there's a disconnect between their reports and what they're finding and what the
0: how the court understands those reports. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just like, yeah, I 100% agree. Um, what is a piece of advice? I don't, so I know we had emailed briefly about this and I think there was a little bit of like confusion on like what you can and can't say regarding this, but I guess I just... I would really like, like, I think this episode in itself can be really triggering, um, just because of the fear that comes with sure. losing the child and the realization and reality of what we're up against and just how corrupt it, it really is. Um, but like, what are you able to give like tools for people who are listening about, I guess my concern is like, I think some moms, because it is trial and error, they, go through their court hearings and maybe they make the wrong steps. Right. And the wrong things. And then that triggers this outcome. Are there things that you could give as an example of things maybe not to say or things to not do? Or-
1: it's it's hard because five people coming to me with the exact same question, I would have five different answers because there are so many variables in each situation. A, how the mom has already been portrayed in the system. B, who the professionals are and which side they're leaning towards, you know, C would be how dad presents. And if he's someone who keeps the mask on tight at all times and is never going to drop it, then I would, you know, help someone proceed differently than if he's the guy that the mask is completely missing. He hasn't seen it in two years. You know, Mm -hmm. so there's so many different variables that that make it difficult to give, you know, and I I don't call it advice because I'm not qualified to give legal advice, but, you know, I think what I would tell people is document everything and then some, and that feels like it is in vain because, you know, I know for myself, 99% of my documentation for six years was never seen by anyone. But when one person was appointed to our case who finally got it and who was very good, that 1% that he reviewed is why my kids are safe today. So you never know what's around the next corner. Mm
0: -hmm. I actually
1: teach my documentation system to people because it helped once I really got it in a format that allowed me to show patterns of behavior And, um, and understand, you know, that that's coupled with understanding what matters to the system, because a lot of things just don't. And I know if I'm reflecting back in the beginning of my battle, everything mattered to me. So I was putting everything in front of the court And what that did was it contributed to muddy water. And when you're up against someone who is a toxic controlling person, their goal is to muddy the water. So if you're not choosing your battles wisely and, you know, and then that is coupled with learning your local system, you know, you have to learn who the players are, who to conflict out um if you hear of someone a like let's say a custody evaluator who is a local psychologist who is really bad news you know very pro dad to an extreme to where it's going to be detrimental to your case if i were in that person's shoes i would go schedule an appointment with that psychologist just for a consultation for me personally in an effort to conflict them out um, so that, that, that person could never have an effect on my case or my kids. So there's lots of different, you know, it, it's truly about strategy and that does not come naturally to any of us. But what I will also say is if you weren't triggered by these things, I would want to check your pulse because mm-hmm. even though I have 14 years of my rear view mirror with my ex-husband in the background, if he sent me an email right now i would still be triggered and a lot of people look up to me as this warrior mom you know i i would say align with someone who you feel you know unfortunately there's a lot of wolves in sheep's clothing in the advocacy community and i see a lot of really dangerous advice being given and people crossing into the legal realm when they shouldn't be so really really vet who you are connecting with, but, you know, survivor communities and groups, when you're in those groups and you see someone whose advice just seems so centered and solid and realistic, you know, follow that person, connect with them, you know, but, um, be careful out there because 14 years ago, you couldn't find a single person talking about these issues. And now it's everywhere, but, you know, people have to understand, you know, this is it is a truly an ultra marathon. There's no 5K, there's no 10K, um, but the the positive is the people we are up against usually only train for a 10K, sometimes a half marathon, and we're in it for the long haul. So it's documenting everything, it's understanding the system, it's shifting and reframing to a strategy mindset um aligning with a coach who can really help you when you are triggered to make sure your communication you know communication is another big topic i see so many people leaning on the gray rock method of communicating that is a horrible direction to go because in the eyes of the family court system it paints us as bitter or jaded. You know, if I can read someone's communication and walk away believing that they don't like their ex, that's a problem, you know? So on the one mom's battle website, people can download our, our guide for free to yellow rock communication. I can send you a copy to share with people also. Um, But there are just, you know, this is, it's, it's an ultra marathon and it's, you know, the radical acceptance is a huge part of this. It doesn't mean that you agree with the way the system is, but it means that for the here and now, you accept that this system is, I mean, it it's not broken. It was truly designed this way. It's doing exactly what it was supposed to do. But, you know, we don't have, I I didn't have the energy when I was in my battle to be tackling the system. You know, I started tackling the system after my kids were safe. When I was in the battle, my focus 100% was learning the system, being strategic, documenting things, choosing my battles wisely. You know, that strategy component coupled with the radical acceptance is critical to a successful outcome. You know, the one thing I would leave people with is always know where your oxygen mask is. Um, If I can look back on my journey and if there are any areas of regret, it's that there were times where my mask was missing. I was in survival mode. And because of that, I could not show up and be 100% present for my kids. You know, I see pictures where I'm in the picture so I know I was there mm-hmm. but I barely remember being there because of the chaos swirling around me and yeah, so right. I think I would have been um much more intentional about self-care you know regulating my nervous system mm-hmm. so that I could be there for my kids because I'm a firm believer that it only takes one healthy parent for a child to come through this and and thrive. And mm-hmm. we are that parent. And so, you know, making sure you are refilling your tank, if that's stepping away from all of this and just going for a walk and breathing, um, whatever that is for you, meditation. <clears throat> I remember my therapist said, when I tried to, you know, shut down her Recommendation that I should meditate. I said, My brain just doesn't stop. I've tried it, it doesn't work. And she said, The people who struggle with meditation are the ones who need it the most. And so, whether that's five minutes on your bathroom floor, <clears throat> excuse me, whether that's five minutes on your bathroom floor in the morning before the chaos of the day starts, you know, whatever that is making sure that you are, your tank is filled and you are centered and you have that oxygen mask nearby at all times. Cause your kids are dependent on
0: that. Mm. Yeah. That's so good. Tina, thank you so much for coming on and equipping us and just sharing all of your knowledge. I know that I, um, am just really like, I feel really, I don't know. I feel like I don't know how I feel. I feel speechless, but I also feel overwhelmed and a little triggered, but it's good because I think this is something that is an important conversation and I admire you so much. And I just, the work that you're doing is, is so brave and courageous and it's, it's impacting and making waves. So thank you for taking time to just come on here and, and talk with us and help us understand more of what you do.
1: Thank you. Truly honored and humbled for the time and uh, um, just sending lots of love and light out to everyone who's walking this path.
0: All right, guys, tune in next Thursday for the next episode. Um, If What Was Her Name has impacted you, um, you can rate the podcast on Spotify or also leave a review on Apple Podcast. Thanks, guys.